we don't really push the envelope. More like open it. This is Litopia, After Dark. The Net's first and foremost literary salon. A feast of ideas for your hungry mind. So pull up a chair and let's talk. Welcome to Litopia After Dark. Uh, two weeks ago, we featured two intrepid polar explorers. Last week, one of Australia's brightest new talents joined us all the way from Melbourne. And this week, we continue to push the boundaries as we do something what well, we've never done before on Litopia After Dark. Um, over the past three and a bit years, we've introduced you to all varieties of writers, but there's one breed that's been conspicuously absent scriptwriters. Well, tonight, we're going to remedy that. Bert Cools is one of the most successful radio dramatists of our times. And basically, if you've ever listened to BBC Radio 4's superb drama, you've probably heard Bert's work. For example, Bert dramatised the entire Sherlock Holmes canon of stories, and much more besides. And Bert, let's get straight down to it. The question that everyone wants answered, of all the actors who have ever played Holmes, and I could mention Jeremy Brett, of course. Uh, Michael Caine did. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, most recently, quite a heartthrob. Peter Cushing did. Robert Downey Jr., he's in the cinema right now. Uh, John Gilgood did on radio some time ago. He did. He Christopher did, Lee. Uh, yeah. Most surprising to, to me was Leonard Nimoy. Mr. Spock. Yeah, yes. Leonard Nimoy on American TV. Absolutely. Not at all, not at all a bad performance. Really? Never seen it. Yeah. And, and of course, we, we've got to mention Basil Rathbone, but I've actually omitted more in that partial list than I've included. Who is your favourite Sherlock Holmes? Oh, good grief, what a question. Um, well, I have to say Clive Merrison, don't I, who plays Holmes in my and others' um, BBC series. Why, why do you the- have to say him? Well, because he might be listening. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but because because he is, um, and this is nothing to do with me, or not very much to do with me. He is a quite superb Sherlock Holmes, yes. and to play Holmes with the range that he brings to it, just with the use of his voice, is a remarkable feat. There you go. You heard it from Bert. He's also the only actor ever to play Sherlock Holmes in dramatizations of all sixty stories. In any medium. 60 stories. That's extraordinary. Yep. Uh, more from Bert in a moment, but... Um, oh, was that a hound I heard? Why, yes, it's our, our very own beast of Dartmoor from England's West Country. It's Dave Bartram. Dave, I'm betting your answer to the following question will be the giant rat of Sumatra. But I could be wrong. <laughs> so, so here goes. Dave, if you were going to be a character... In a Sherlock Holmes story, which Sherlockian character would you be? Uh, it would depend entirely on which adaptation you were paying attention to. I think if it was um, if it was the current um, Lionel Richie uh, version, <laughs> or whatever his name is, um, I think it's Guy Richie, but it's much the same. Oh yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd go for Watson, but if it was the Basil Rathbone one, I definitely wouldn't go for no. Watson. <laughs> um, Oh, yeah, so I don't know. I think I'd like to be some kind of cheeky Cockney incidental character. Oh, maybe a, a Baker Street irregular. <laughs> Indeed. Or, whatever or a that highly is. irregular, possibly, yeah. I thought, um, yeah. I thought it was some kind of motion. <laughs> it might be. They have charts for that sort of thing, you know, a number six and a. Really? So yes, they do. <laughs> More information than I needed. Ali, very, very welcome back. Uh, God, did we miss you last, last week? Uh, we did love you. We, we did get through the show, but, you know, I could have done a lot better with your help. Um, same question for you, really. I mean, who would you be? Bearing in mind, of course, the, the range of female characters in, in um, uh, Conan Doyle's oeuvre is not that great. Well, actually, I was going to go for the giant rat of Sumatra. Oh, you were? Well. <laughs> <laughs> no, Irene Adler, I reckon. Ah, uh, yes. The woman who outfitted Sherlock Holmes. I knew and you were going to say scandal. that. Oh, a scandal in Bohemia. Can you imagine? Yes. That'd be great. I'd have to be involved in a scandal in Bohemia. <laughs> uh, the, the only woman to impress Holmes, actually. Um, I think so. Yes, according to Watson, um, it's always referred to by Holmes as the woman. Kept her I think it's quite easy to get in, involved in a scandal in Bohemia. Just get invited to a garden party by <laughs> Prince Philip. <laughs> <laughs> and you're there. Yes. 
Yes, I thought you'd say that, not Mrs. Hudson, of course, although Mrs. Hudson has her charms too, of course, mostly uh, of the culinary variety. So, so join us for the next 40 minutes as we prove the truth in Holmes's dictum that when you have eliminated all which is impossible, then whatever remains, however improbable, must be the Nets' first and foremost literary salon, Litopia, after dark. Litopia needs your help. For the cost of a cappuccino a week, you can help us stay on the air. Click on the Support Us link now. Our guest tonight describes himself as six foot four, craggly handsome, and an inveterate liar. Uh, Bert Cools. Where did you dig that up from? Uh, we have our scouts. Oh, that Baker Street irregulars all over the place. Um, Bert lives right here on the uh, on the on the south coast, actually, of the UK, and he produced his first creepy story at the age of seven. He's been horrifying people with his writing ever since. But was head writer on the BBC's project to dramatise the entire Sherlock Holmes canon. Uh, clearly that wasn't enough for him because he then went on to write the further adventures of Sherlock Holmes' 16 entirely new stories. And apart from Holmes, Burt scripted and dramatised Ursula Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea, starring Judi Dench, The 39 Steps with Tom Baker, uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, that sounds fascinating, with Oliver Reed and Roger Daltrey. Wow. Um, Ian Rankin's Rebus, Alice Peters' brother, brother Cadfail, and it goes on and on. Basically, if it's been on radio, Bert's probably had a hand in it somewhere. <laughs> oh, I wish that was true. It's not. How did it all start? The other day, I was doing a talk to a, a university, to a group of creative writing students, and um, they asked me that. And I told them, as I'm about to tell you, that when I was growing up, we didn't have a television. And when I said that, I saw 30 jaws all drop simultaneously. It was just such a, a remarkably foreign concept to them. But it's true. When I was a kid growing up, we didn't have television and radio was everything. Um, and in those days, I can remember listening to, to children's programs, but also to the early Sherlock Holmeses with Carlton Hobbs and just drama in general. Dick Barton, I can remember. Comedy programs, I yeah, can remember. Yeah. And it's so atmospheric. Radio is, paints such wonderful pictures for you. The old cliche, of course, is that um, radio is better than TV or film because the visuals are better on radio. How did you get in, in in the first place? I worked at the BBC, first of all as a librarian and then as a recording engineer for a while, then as a sound effects operator and lastly as a producer in the drama department. And while I was working as a recording engineer, I was working on a lot of plays and quite a lot of them I didn't think were very good. Mm. And I just found myself thinking one day, well, surely even I could write something better than that. And from there on, the, the thought goes to, well, if you think you can, try it. So I did. I, I wrote a script, sent it in. And really, to my amazement, they bought it and it was produced. That gave you the confidence to, to try it yourself. Is that a route? I mean, that was, wasn't such a long time ago. That was 1989. Um, yes. Is that a route that people can follow today? Yes, it is. Definitely it is. Um... If you're on the net, which people listening to this obviously are, you can go to uh, a BBC site called The Writer's Room, yeah. which is set up specifically for people who are interested in writing for radio and TV. It gives you sample scripts. It gives you guidelines to follow. It gives you a route to submit work. And they do read everything that comes in. And uh, it is a way in, definitely. Yeah. Crime Fox actually just tossed in a question about um, how would you describe Sherlock Holmes as a real person? Drug taker? gay, depressive, and what do you think of the disputes about him? How, how would I describe him as a real person? Um, mm. Lonely. Lonely. Uh, tortured. An outsider. Someone who can't fit in with the society of his day and has deliberately chosen to remove himself from it and made a strength of that. He's a man with only one friend. He's a man with no small talk. He's a man who doesn't fit into the world. Disputes about him. Disputes like, is he gay, is he rude, that sort of thing. Yes, he's very rude. Yes, he's depressive. Yes, he's manic. Um, is he gay? I, I'm not sure you can answer that question about a, a literary figure. Probably the only person who could tell you that would be Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And um, it's not the sort of question he would have addressed, I think. It's not, is it? No. no but I recognised your name um, very, very late, actually, just over Christmas, when, um, I mean, I, I, I love listening to homes and you know, all sorts of things like that and i heard one of your um, your new sherlock stories 
on the uh-huh. uh, on the BBC iPlayer called the Abergavenny Murder. Ah, yes. And I thought to myself, this is just a classic piece of writing. It's essentially a two-hander, isn't it? And it happens it's in a- real time. Yeah, it's a two-hander that runs across the 45 minutes or so that the show runs. And the story, without giving too much away, is that Holmes and Watson are at home and they're bored and they're waiting for something to happen and nothing does. And then suddenly there's the classic ring at the doorbell and a client comes up the stairs and the client says one line and then falls down dead. Yes. And the thrust of the plot is what can they work out about who the man is, why he is there, and... They do, between them, Holmes mostly, but Watson, of course, helping. And by the end of it, they know exactly who he is, exactly why he came, exactly what crime he was involved in, whether or not he was guilty, and what the police ought to do about it. Yes, it's an absolute masterpiece in in introduction. But it's also just really, really good writing, and I was just so impressed. Just wondering a little bit about um, the chap you've had a, a long-distance working relationship with. Let's just look for a few minutes about um, ACD uh-huh. himself. Um, now, some interesting facts and figures first before I ask you a, a, a key question. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle's father suffered from epilepsy and alcoholism. Uh, eventually, he died in, a, in an insane asylum. Um, he actually died in the same year that Conan Doyle decided to kill off Sherlock Holmes, raising the possibility, I suppose, that Holmes might have represented something of a father figure, possibly, to Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, His mum kept a boarding house, one of whose lodgers was a pathologist, Brian Charles Waller. speculated that uh, Mr Waller had a long affair with uh, Conan Doyle's mother. Uh, Doyle was educated by the Jesuits. He served as senior physician of Field Hospital in the Boer War, wrote an impassioned imperialistic defence of that war, for which he probably received his knighthood. Um, After the death of his son, though, in the First World War, he dedicated himself to spiritualism, writing and lecturing on the topic like mad, authoring a book in 1922 entitled The Coming of the Fairies, in which he supported the existence of the little people. By then, of course, he was one of the richest writers in the world. So... A man of many, many paradoxes, I think. Um, Absolutely. When you adapt an author's work, you get closer to his mind than possibly anyone else in the world. You, Bert, have collaborated with Arthur Conan Doyle over time and space. And who knows, you might have even channeled him if his um, <laughs> suppositions are right about spiritualism. What, what do you know about this man that we don't? I know that he was a much, much finer stylistic writer than he's often given credit for. The Sherlock Holmes stories he regarded as um, light reading, that he tossed them off, he sent them off to the Strand, that was it. He didn't want to know about them after that. That's why there were so many uh, inconsistencies in the stories, that's why there were so many um, mistakes. He didn't think they were his real work. He thought his real work was the big historical novels that nobody reads anymore. He thought his real work were the the non-fiction books, the history of the war and so forth, and particularly his histories of spiritualism. He is a marvellous... It's interesting, I say say he is rather than he was. He is an interest... He is a marvellous, marvellous stylistic writer. The writing in the home stories, in the best of them, is clear and lucid and appears effortless... And I would love to know if it really was effortless or if a great deal of work went into it. We do have some manuscripts which include a great many, uh, some of them, a great many crossings out, a great many recastings, a great many uh, uh, alterations. I suspect it wasn't effortless for him, but he had that wonderful knack that some writers have of making it look as though he just sat in a corner of the room and tossed off the story, and that was that. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. Yeah. Now, they're not... Really, in the modern sense, at least, detective stories. Um, no, no, absolutely. In not. some of them, yes. there's, no, there's no crime. Um, and in many of them, the, the point of the story is, is not actually to find out who done it. Sometimes he just sort of tosses that in, in his sort of side information. So what is it about them that, that hooks us so much? They're not detective stories. They're stories about a detective. And there's a, an important distinction, I think. And more specifically, they're stories about a detective and his only friend. They're always called the Sherlock Holmes stories. Everyone calls them the Sherlock Holmes stories. They're not. They're the Sherlock Holmes and John Watson stories. If you take Watson out of the mix, it all collapses. He did try writing a few without Watson in. And 
on the whole, they're not successes. What hooks us? I think there are many things. I mean, the atmosphere, the period, the quite illusory idea that Victorian London was a wonderful place to live, which obviously it wasn't, unless you were um, one of the elite, unless you were particularly well off. But it was a world that's seen now as being ordered, as being orderly, a world where, to use an old-fashioned phrase, everybody knew their place, and where a world in which one man or two good men could make a, a real difference in society. But it's the friendship, the relationship between the two guys that's at the absolute centre of the stories. And that, uh, certainly for me, that is the great, great appeal of them. Okay, so there's a theory there you're putting forward that there's something about the, the, shall we say, the God-given order of society that appeals to us. Does that sort of go up and down then in, in accordance with how relatively disorderly our present day society is? I think it possibly does. That's not something I've ever really considered. Um, fandom for Sherlock Holmes, if you can use such a word, uh, really started up in earnest uh, in the 30s and really has grown since then. Um, there's always a nostalgic yearning for earlier times, whether that nostalgia is, is based in fact or based in, in uh, desire. And I think there is something desirable about gaslit streets and cobblestones and handsome cabs and the, the, the gaslights penetrating the fog and the, the thought that evil is out there, but here in Baker Street, we are cocooned and safe. And someone who comes through that door is, is in a, a world of... of um, of help. And I think that that's a very powerful a very powerful thing to latch on. This is very close to steampunk actually. Isn't it, it is right? some of it. Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's got those things. Um, the other thing about the fogs, of course, is the respiratory diseases and the, <laughs> the mortality rates and so on. Exactly. And there was the great stink of whatever year it was. I can't remember when the Thames kind of just became this uh, filthy ooze in the heat. But no, I, I, was, I, was, I was thinking about um, this kind of the gestalt of what you're talking about. And I've been wondering, what, what is it about Sherlock Holmes and certain other heroes that makes them perennial and so appealing? And it goes back to something we were talking about a few weeks ago, about the hero's journey and all the, the, those kinds of tropes about the development sure. of personal growth, yada, yada, yada. The thing about Holmes that I think is so appealing, and Harry Potter as well, curiously, is that he doesn't change. In an ever-changing, chaotic environment where, like you say, bad things happen and evil stalks, here is here are the good guys, and they're always they're like you know they're like Clint Eastwood's man with no name. They don't change throughout the story, and yet the story gets resolved. What changes throughout the canon, and, and this is very clever, and I don't know if Doyle did this deliberately or not. What changes is our view of Holmes that we get through Watson. If you look at the first story, um, A Study in Scarlet, where they meet for the first time as young, unknown, impoverished guys, um, a good part of the story is that Watson can't make head or tail of Holmes. And it's kind of a detective story inside the detective stories. He tries to work him out as he gets to know him. And that's a, a development that does, a, does progress all the way through. If you look at the relationship in, say, His Last Bow, which is one of the very final short stories, it's a very different relationship from the one in the early stories, even though the characters of both men are, as you say, essentially the same. Do you think that's why the uh, the Lionel Richie adaptations have been so popular? Why did you say because, Lionel Richie? Because <laughs> I, I can't remember the guy's, the man's name. Guy, the guy's guy, 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 you just yeah, said it's guy. Guy, yeah. Lionel um, Richie. I don't know, dancing on the ceiling. Wouldn't allow that with health and safety these days, would they? Not like the good old days in the 80s. But, um, yeah... <laughs> One of the reasons, I mean, I enjoyed the, 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 the first, I haven't seen the second one yet, but it is it is the interplay between the two key characters that makes it. Yeah. You know, it's Definitely. nice sets and there's lots of clever dressing and so, and it's the same with with the, the BBC one, although I've only seen three quarters of one episode of that. I thought it, I quite liked it. Um, it was, um, it, it is that interplay of, of two characters and you do get that in that first um, Guy Ritchie uh, film. <laughs> The, well the the relation <laughs> the, the re Sherlock you know Holmes is kind of uncovered through the relationship with Watson as the film progresses and I think that's why it's not just another Holmes adaptation I think that's why it's gone and and done so well because it, it's got to the core of it yeah and the same is true of, of the TV series the TV series gets closer to the relationship which is the core of the stories for me than any other visual 
representation I can think of, even more so than the, the Guy Ritchie movies. Um, and it, it rather puts the lie to my nostalgia thing, doesn't it? Because the TV series is firmly set today. But it does point up the fact that it is that relationship that makes the stories work. But there is isn't there is a nostalgia aspect, though, isn't there? Because, I mean, again, I've only seen three quarters of one episode, so you have to <laughs> forgive me. Um, that, that episode, which was the scandal in Belgravia one, yeah. every location seemed to be a grand Edwardian or Victorian pile. You know, they were in a, an Edwardian terrace or they're in Buckingham Palace or there's somewhere, you know, which is Georgian, obviously. But, you know, all the, all the locations were evocative of the past. So I don't know whether that's the case across the rest or not. No, that's definitely not the case. Um, one of the things I didn't care for about the, the old Granada series, the Jeremy Brett series, was that certainly towards its end, it was very much a sort of English heritage TV. We were yeah. getting the beautiful country houses and we were getting the immaculate sets and the beautiful roads. Um, no, the, the uh, Sherlock, uh, the, the Mark Gatiss, Steve Moffat show, does explore the, the underside of London as well. Well, possibly... Adding to our theory here, possibly we are nostalgic, not just for the, the trappings of Victoriana, but we're nostalgic for real relationships, total friendship and commitment, more than you find on your Facebook. There's never any question, was there, of Watson double-crossing Holmes or dropping him? No, that's, that's very true. I, and the relationship does test both men to their limits. I mean, the, the, the friendship gets extremely stre uh, stretched in the original stories. And there are moments where um, Watson does feel like walking out on Holmes. There are moments where Holmes almost kills Watson with an experiment or putting him in danger or whatever. Um, and it's a measure of the strength of the friendship that it survives that. But wasn't it clear that one of my favourite adaptations is the um, Ben Kingsley, Michael Caine? Oh, yes, lovely. Where, and it turns the friendship entirely on its head and the relationship is utterly different from anything yes, you it, could it, it, uh, it's, imagine. It's, it's wonderful. Because the whole premise of that is that there is no Sherlock Holmes. I mean, yeah. people are often talking about Michael Caine plays Sherlock Holmes, but of course he didn't. He never has. No. Um, he no. plays an actor who's brought in to be Sherlock Holmes. Um, and it works beautifully. I mean, if people haven't seen it, the premise is that Watson is the genius and he invents Sherlock Holmes for the purpose of his stories uh, to avoid putting himself in the forefront. Um, it's really he who solves all the mysteries. It's really he who is the man of action. And it takes off, it it, uh, it rather runs away from him and he has to suddenly produce Holmes. Um, and he does so in this <laughs> rather improbable form of this drunken actor played by Michael Caine. Yes. It's a wonderful film. Now it's high time that we paid a trip to the chair room alley. I'm sure you've got hundreds of things to say. Oh, absolutely. We're all sitting around in deer stalkers and uh, smoking <laughs> pipes and loving all this. Yes, um, <laughs> um, he wants to know if Bert approves of moving Sherlock in time, like the Nazi movies in World War II. Well, um, until comparatively recently... Dramatizations of, of Holmes and Watson always put them in the time of the dramatization. Um, it was very unusual when the, the first two Basil Rathbone movies were made that they were set in Victorian times. Um, and it was an experiment which didn't last because after the first two, um, they did move him firmly up into what was their present day. Um, I, I, I don't... I don't disapprove it. If it works, I, I enjoy it very much. I think Sherlock is a triumph on BBC One. Um, I don't personally care for the, the Basil Rathbone movies, but that's nothing to do with Basil Rathbone. Well, not much to do with Basil Rathbone and not much to do with the updating. But it's everything to do with uh, the man who plays Watson. Uh, Jabez points out that the later Rathbone movies dropped the Nazis and World War II themes and moved the plots into a kind of gothic Neverland. I love the idea of a gothic Neverland. I'm sorry, yes. Yeah, I mean, there, there's one called the, oh, heavens, the Scarlet Claw, yep, which is one very, very, very moody. Yeah. I mean, pe people dismiss them as B-movies, and, and they kind of were. They were made quickly. But the best of them are beautifully directed and shot and, and are really wonderful to look at and, and almost timeless. I mean, you wouldn't know. I mean, you, you see the odd car and, you know, there are telephones, but then there are telephones in the original stories in the later ones. People forget that the stories were written over a very long period of time. Um, the early ones were written in the late 19th century, but he was writing them up to the, the 1920s. And there are elements in the later stories that are kind of 1920-ish mm. without specifically saying so. Gosh. I did read a lovely um, Holmes and Watson 
story. It must have been written shortly after the kind of the copyright lapsed and anybody, you know, it became fair game. Uh, uh-huh. And it was Holmes and Watson pulled out of retirement to infiltrate uh, the Germans during the Second World War. And I, I just remember the one scene they're being taken across the channel in secret and they're in wicker bath chairs with like tartan <laughs> rugs. Oh. And it's, it's really quite, it was very funny, as I recall. I can't remember who wrote it or what the title was, but it was quite good. That's lovely. It's, it's a, lo- a lovely image, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but tell us about the, the process itself. So whether it's an original script or whether it's an adaptation... Um, you you finish it, then what happens? Um, I finish it, I, I send it in to the BBC. Uh, I don't have to try and sell it to the BBC because the whole series was done on commission. Yeah. So, I mean, they're expecting the script. It goes in, goes into um, one of the the producers. We had two producers for the main bulk of the of the Conador stories, one producer for the Further Adventures, um, Enid Williams and Patrick Rayner were the two involved in the uh, the short stories, both brilliant producers. Um, and, of course, when I say producer, I should explain, in the BBC radio world, producer equals director as oh, well. They, they direct um, as well. Okay, right. Yeah, yes, they do. Um, this is... I'd like to think this was, was an indication of versatility, but I strongly suspect it's an indication of lack of money on yeah. the part of the BBC <laughs> and not willing to, to pay more than one person. But, um, but it's marvellous because it does give you... Um, it does give you a central central referring point for the writer. And after the script goes in, uh, we get to what actually, I, I think in many ways, is the most enjoyable bit of the whole process for me because um, the producer will read the script, they will have uh, points they want to make, this works, that doesn't work, um, that's not so good. It's very valuable by that stage when you've lived with it for a certain time yourself to have a, a new fresh pair of eyes. And so it gets bandied backwards and forwards a few times. I do rewrites. I say, yes, I agree with that point. No, I disagree with that point. And we have a little uh, backwards and forwards on it. And finally, it gets to a final approved stage, and we talk about casting. One of the great joys of working for BBC Radio is that the writer is involved in the whole process. It's not like TV. It's not like it's where the script is an, almost a disposable asset, you know, that it comes and it goes and writers, they're ten a penny. Um, I was always consulted on casting. Um, a lot of my suggestions for casting were taken up, which was pleasing. pleasing. Um, some of them weren't. Um, and I never, I can think of one instance in the whole 60 stories where I had a single line of dialogue changed without my permission hmm. by a producer. Jeez. And that was the only time. And that is an incredible thing for a writer to be able to say. Well, yeah, compared to some of the horror stories that come out of Hollywood, not necessarily even Hollywood, about um, you know the way the writers are always the bottom of the pile in film yeah. and television. So you like to be treated as a human being? Absolutely, I yeah. do, yes. Yeah. So yeah. I, I like to be treated with a certain amount of respect. So um, the recording process itself, would you be involved in that? Yes, absolutely. Um, the show is cast, it's allocated studio time. The BBC rule of thumb is that they allocate one day in the studio for a half an hour of uh, finished program time, which is, is marvellous if you're working at 45 minutes because you get two days, which is a luxury. Um, you get the same amount of time if we were recording an hour's show. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, we go to the studio, um, the cast assemble, uh, we have a sit-down read-through around the table, first thing in the morning. That's the first time the cast will have come together, first time they will have seen each other, apart from the regulars, obviously. That's a marvellous experience to, um, to hear the things spoken aloud for the first time, except in my imagination, to find that there are things that still don't work, there are things that work nicely. Uh, and then, generally speaking, they're broken down scene by scene, rehearsed, uh, run through on mic, um, a couple of rehearsals, maybe on mic and then a take or another take, uh, and pickups for retakes, and then that's, that seems so done. What's your involvement you- during that? I mean, if you really don't like the way an actor has delivered a line, I mean, that's up to the producer, isn't it? Or can you just uh, it, stick your hand uh, up? No, and no, say? I, you, you can, yes, I can, I can stick my oar in, and <laughs> probably did far too often. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, the, the, the directors, the producers are my friends, uh, and we have very good working relationships, but it is a it's, a, it's not an art exactly, what's the word? It's a craft. Working with a director under those circumstances is a skill. And it's a skill I like to think I, I acquired. Um, radio works, despite the fact that you have two days for 45 minutes, which can sound quite a long time, radio is non-stop and very intense in its production process. And it doesn't do 
to let a producer wrap up a scene and move on to the next one. And then you say to them, oh, hang on a minute, you're not going to let it go through like that, are you? I mean, there are ways and means of, of making points as you go. A good, a good producer will, will turn to a writer after a take and say, was that okay for you? Did Anything there you particularly didn't like? And you, you learn to balance um, big things against small things. I mean, if, if, there's a, if there's a performance that's off key, you grab that, you get that at the read-through. I, I, get that. Take- I get this constantly from Ali. She says, "Your Peter, your performance is just off key. Just do it again. <laughs> God's sake. Have another about- crack. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you've said, actually, um, I have another little quote we've tracked down, but if I oh, write yeah. anything that people will... He said, I'll write anything that people will pay me to write in any medium, quote. Um, Absolutely. A bit, bit cold-blooded. Have you been pigeonholed, do you think, by Sherlock Holmes in the same way maybe as Arthur Conan Doyle was? That's interesting. Um, I think I might have become pigeonholed as a sort of crime and detective specialist a bit. Um, I'm not. I've written other things as well. Um, The Sherlock Holmes project has now pretty much officially come to an end. I don't think there are going to be any more further adventures. So my my yoke to Sherlock and John is uh, is probably over. I still get approached for Sherlockian things. I, I had a an email the other day asking me to contribute to a uh, compendium of, of essays about the Hound of the Baskervilles, for example, which is very nice. That wouldn't have happened without my involvement in the radio shows. So if I am linked to them, I don't mind it in the slightest. I'm not in the position that Doyle was in where people are ignoring, at least I hope I'm not, where people are ignoring my other work uh, to the exclusion of um, Sherlock. Uh, no, putting my other work... Um, aside for Sherlock Holmes. That doesn't happen with me. I, I get almost as much correspondence about the Brother Cadviles, about the Ian Rankins, about the Isaac Asimovs, you know, as, as I do about Holmes. It just, it, it just happens that the Holmes audience is, is very big and very um, literate and very knowledgeable and very vocal at times. Yeah, I bet they are. It's quite, it's quite a community, isn't it? I did a bit of research and looked at the, the SherlockHolmes.com and there's loads of communities out there with very active um, foray or forums or whatever you call them, discussions, about all these all, about all these things. And it's <laughs> ongoing and it's never going... It doesn't look like it's, a, it's ever going to, to end. And it's an extraordinary... Um, legacy i guess and there's there's never going to be a waning of interest it doesn't feel like it no i mean doyle created immortals there's there's no two ways about it i mean the characters will never die and because of that doyle will never die and it's wonderful and it's such a shame that he couldn't appreciate it for what it was while he was alive i i have a sneaking suspicion he was fonder of holmes and watson than he's often painted as being I don't. I mean, people will tell you that he hated Sherlock Holmes. I don't believe for a moment that he hated Sherlock. Holmes. Made him very wealthy, didn't it? Um, you also said I remember watching the first Star Wars film and wanting to rewrite all the dialogue. <laughs> yes, Mr. Cools, you did say that. Good Lord, where on earth did I say that? But I, but um, listen, I agree with you. Why is dialogue in films often so awful? Can I just jump in there with something? That, that another thing about the Star Wars dialogue, there's the famous quote from Harrison Ford. Oh, when, yes, on the, yes. On the, on the set of Star Wars, it's, George, you can write this shit, but you can't say it. <laughs> 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 well, um, I've heard it suggested that he couldn't write it either. Um, yeah. the, the bottom line is that he was a very, that he is a very imaginative filmmaker, but he can't write a script to save his life. Um, the best Star Wars movies are the ones that George Lucas didn't write. But the the power of that first film is so great that it, it doesn't matter that you know you, you you go with it. But I remember particularly the dialogue for the robots. I wanted to redo. I just wanted to make it tighter and wittier. Well, it was supposed to be like Wamba and the other guy in Ivanhoe, wasn't it? What's the what's the jester and what's I can't remember the name of the other chap in Ivanhoe. You know, it's that tradition of the two lowly characters. Oh, sure. telling yeah. the story, I- isn't it? And that's where it came from, and and that's probably why it's quite so stilted. But the dialogue in the the latter three films is shocking beyond belief. Oh, yes, absolutely. Can I ask Bert another quick question here? Before, before we go any further, I got I picked up this this thing off um, Twitter or whatever the thing is. Um, this this five characteristics of a cl- true classic of literature by um, Jeffrey Brenzel, who's um, Yale University. Oh God, I'll be in trouble now. Uh, anyway, um, 
He said that these five criteria, it addresses universal and permanent human concerns. It's a game changer. It influences other great works, is respected by experts and challenges as it rewards. And he picks out examples of things that don't do these things like the Da Vinci Code or um, X is for xenophobia or whatever. And he's a good example <laughs> of things that do improve things, uh, things like Moby Dick. And I just wonder whether you think that the, the, the Holmes canon would meet those five uh, tests of a classic. I think it. I think it does. Yes, I think it definitely does. But I'm. I'm also part of me wants to say that I think that's a very sort of highfalutin and over academic way of saying that there are good books and there are bad books, and it's oh, fairly it is, easy absolutely, to tell. Them yeah, yeah. But but it's, yeah, you know, it's interesting. It, it, interesting criteria, and definitely yes. I mean, all of those that the, the home stories meet. The detective fiction would not be the same today if Condor hadn't invented Sherlock Holmes. Right. Certainly, so that one just met no question. Prime Foot um, wants to know, in all the adaptations and mashups, what would be finally going too far with Holmes? You having said you're right, anything? <laughs> My word. Well, what would be too far for me to do with Holmes? Almost everything that you can imagine a writer doing with Holmes and Watson has been done. Um, he's been written as a woman... Uh, there are several <laughs> several novels that write them as a gay couple. Um, almost, he's been written as an alien. He's been written as a time traveller. He's been written as a clone. Um, it's hard to think of the, the only thing I one thing I wouldn't do with Sherlock Holmes is make him an idiot. Central to the character. I mean, I, I don't mean in the sense that the, the Ben Kingsley Michael Caine film does it because that's fun and it's not meant to be Sherlock Holmes anyway. But he has to have the core characteristics. He has to be intelligent. He has to be observant. He has to be on the side of, of justice. You can't change those. So anything that affected that, I would say, would be going too far. So he could be a talking horse. Hey, Mr. Sherlock. It's a story where he disguises himself as a horse. <laughs> we just create a new concept here. Quick, someone spell it. Because yeah, Holmes does, does say, quote, he does say, I am not a whole-souled admirer of womankind. And I think it's on that basis ah. that a lot of people have, um, have deduced his... Uh, Inherent sexuality, possibly, his preferences. Um, any more questions or observations, Ali, from the chat room? Well, Izzy said that Sherlock Holmes and the... This was supposed to be a title, I think. Sherlock Holmes and the Alien, in space no one can deerstalk clean. I'm not sure where the clean comes from. No. I can imagine... It nearly works, <laughs> but Is that like quite. alien dry cleaners? <laughs> I think something like that. Sherlock Holmes and the Aliens has... Do their laundry. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes and the Aliens has been done quite a lot. Um, there's a fairly good novel that puts Sherlock Holmes and Watson into the War of the Worlds, for example. Um, it's, it's better than it sounds, somehow. Cranford also wants to know, Bert, if you knew R.D. Wingfield in his radio days. Absolutely. Rodney Wingfield, yes, I knew him well. Um, for people who don't know the name, a very, very prolific and very good radio dramatist uh, specialising in crime, the creator of... Oh, good heavens, Inspector Frost, oh, right. I think. Right. Yeah, um, uh, a marvellous writer, um, a pioneer in really good, uh, what's the word, naturalistic radio drama. A lot of things have happened, um, good things have happened as a result of getting onto radio. I, mean, I think it's fair to say that, you know, if you're expecting to make your fortune out of selling a script to the BBC, you're probably going to be disappointed. But, That's very yeah, but on the other hand, it gives you fantastic experience, and many good things have happened subsequently. I remember driving through Newcastle one day, and uh, the person who's driving me just would not shut the radio off because this new thing called the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was uh -huh. being broadcast, and it was just absolutely compelling listening because that's how Douglas Adams got uh, got his amazing um, act going. Absolutely. Do you think, Bert, that? It still is a sort of a, a, um, a springboard for greater things as far as writers are concerned. I think it's wrong to regard radio as a springboard. Radio is as valid and powerful a, a way of expressing yourself, if you're a dramatist, as is TV, as is movies, as is the stage. For all the, the popularity of the Hitchhiker's TV series, for all the medium 
popularity of the movie, it still works best on radio. It was a radio concept from the start. And I don't think Douglas Adams ever thought, oh, right, well, we've got that out of the way now. It's out in the world because of the radio show. It's time to move on from that. He loved radio. He was very aware of what radio can do. But yes, it's, it's, it's a good way in. The BBC, I think I'm right in saying, is still the largest employer of uh, writers in the country. It's still the, the largest production company for new writers in the country. How do you see that going in the States? Um, radio drama is not very healthy. Do you think it's going to go like that hill here? I hope not. Um, I think not. I think the, the BBC are, are so conscious of, of their, their role in preserving it. Uh, there, are, there is radio drama in the States, but it tends to be small scale. It tends to be uh, confined to small independent production companies who sell their material to small independent radio stations. Um, a friend of mine over here called Matthew Elliott writes Sherlock Holmes episodes for uh, for a company called Imagination Theatre. Very good ones. Um, and even over here, you see, we're talking about radio, but really, I mean, audio drama is what we've got. Um, CD sales are now as important as broadcasts. Um, the BBC iPlayer, more people now listen after a broadcast than do listen to a live broadcast. You've got companies like Big Finish who, who are doing really very well for themselves. And indeed, they have their own Sherlock Holmes line now, but with, with the Doctor Who CDs and other things. So, yes, there, there's always a market. Always. That's encouraging. Ali, any final thoughts from the chat room? Um, yes. No, Crimerfoot points out that he loved listening to the secret diary of Adrian Mole diaries, um, but he's now left the chat room because it's past his bedtime. Uh, <laughs> How old is he? <laughs> Who, Adrian Mole? He's no, 13 and a half. I was like, oh, that's... A bit scary, actually. You never know who's in the chat room. It can be the wild frontier, and there absolutely is sometimes. The other thought that's been bugging me for a while now is that most stories are about opposing a psychopath or a sociopath of some. You know, the motivation of the big villain is to be more powerful and more rich than anybody else, which is kind of a sociopathic kind of thing, or a psychopathic sort of thing. And there's no particular thing behind it. Like Moriarty comes across very much as a sociopath, much as in say Brett. Brett's um, uh, Brett's uh, Holmes comes across as a bit Aspergersy. Uh-huh. Yes, and I just wondered why why that is the kind of default place for most villains. Is like there's no particular reason why they're bad. They're just bad, you know. Like, and I mean, all right, real history is like that. You think Stalin, Hitler, you know, they're just kind of sociopathic, psycho, psychopathic individuals um, and I'm, it might be art imitating life but and it always ends up with you know the, the denouement of almost every film that has any kind of action element is two guys duking it out it always boils down to two blokes having a punch up at yeah, some I, point you know, even, even Holmes did you know uh, at the Reichenbach Falls you know it's just two guys fighting um, and I just wondered why that's the default position uh, and are there any alternatives really it's the default position in movies because, um, as someone said at a, a public screening I went to the other day, um, movies these days are made for people who don't read. Mm. Um, wow. mo- movies these days go for, uh, in general, go for a simplistic sort of storyline. You have a hero, you have a villain, and the, the guideline, if, if you read any of the many, many books on how to write screenplays, they, they will map it out for you. There's your hero. There's your hero's friend. There's your villain. Um, and the whole progress of the plot is towards a final confrontation. It, does, it works because it's satisfying. You have good, you have evil, you have the battle, you have good winning. But if you go back to literature, I mean, if you look at the Sherlock Holmes stories, people always think of Moriarty as this great master criminal. He appears in two stories. Hmm. And in one of those, he doesn't appear in person. He's only mentioned. Um, The majority of the Doyle stories are not like that. The majority of them are um, individuals committing crime for gain, uh, for personal gain rather than for power. In some of the Sherlock Holmes stories, um, there are no crimes committed at all. And it's... One of the, the one of the the uh, tenants of the uh, of the radio series was let's get back to the stories let's strip away. More people now know Holmes and Watson from TV, from movies, from advertising, from comedy sketches, from everything but the stories. If you go back to the stories, you, you don't get that cliched um, 
that cliched construction at all. But it works in, in Hollywood because they, they like buying things that they know will work. It's, you're hard put to it now to find a mainstream action adventure or detective story that doesn't end with the hero and the villain confronting each other. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're quite right. And they're tedious, actually, aren't they? They're actually quite tedious, I think. Um, well, well you, you wish they would try something different yeah, for a bit. Yeah, you yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's also, it's a, it's a computer game trope, isn't it? They call it the big boss scenario where, where, where you work through X number of levels, you end up confronting whatever the huge yeah, thing is. Yeah. I mean, I think about the, the, the one that was the most like a video game to me was Hellboy where you, he literally ends up in this arena with this gigantic many-tentacled thing, and you think, this could be yeah. footage straight from a computer game, because sure. it's the same thing. Is he's wondering if um, Bert's noticed Doyle's tendency to give everyone enormous heads? Wow. About three-quarters <laughs> of, three of his characters have big heads. Is what that, does that, that mean? Bert? I think that's a slight exaggeration. Um, I can't think of too many characters <laughs> off the top of my medium-sized head that have um, yeah. that have large heads. Perhaps Sherlock did. posed that question. Sherlock did. Sherlock had a large head. And Moriarty did, I think. Moriarty did. Moriarty very much the mirror image of Sherlock. Bad Sherlock to good Sherlock. Um, I can think of one other character who's described as having a large head. Um, Perhaps the person who posed the question could could uh, give us some examples. Phrenology, wasn't that a big thing around that sort of time? So head shape and head size would be quite important in determining character and intelligence and all that sort of thing? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, Doyle has home say in one story that they're, they're deducing about a, a guy from his hat. They have his hat. And he says, <laughs> this, this, this is an intelligent man. And Watson says, how on earth can you tell that? And Holmes says, put the hat on, it will come down over your ears. Um, so large a brain must have, must have a lot of intelligence in it, which, of course, is scientific nonsense. And Doyle, I presume, knew it was scientific nonsense, but, you know, he wasn't writing science. He was writing popular fiction. Absolutely. Now, uh, Bert, um, we haven't told you about this, but we are going to play a tiny little quiz. This is our oh. one from time to time. Um, this is right. called Beat, Beat Bartram. Uh, you have to answer these questions, <laughs> Bert, before... Thrashed again. Yes. <laughs> no, no, before before um, Dave gets the answers, all right? It's, all a, right? it's a general purpose quiz on modern drama. Are you ready? Uh, I'm, as I left would be. Yeah. <laughs> All right, number one, first question. Uh, which novel by uh, Rosalind Erskine features naughty goings-on in a 60s public school for the daughters of the disgustingly rich? I have a, an unfair advantage on that one. The answer is The Passion Flower Hotel. You're correct. Who adapted it for radio? <laughs> Uh, another unfair advantage. That would be me. You get a, you get two points. That well done. <laughs> I, 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 I smell a giant rat of Sumatra here. <laughs> <laughs> Second question. George Orwell wrote that together with those of Conan Doyle and R. Austin Freeman, these detective stories are quote the only ones since Poe that are worth rereading. Who was he talking about? Good heavens. Mm. Well, Jeeves and Worcester. No. Sensing a thing for, for the previous two questions, could you be talking about Ernest Brahma? And who was his protagonist? Max Carrados. Correct. Well done. Yes, who adapted those for radio? Um, that would be several writers, but including me. Oh, what a coincidence. Good group. Question number three. Um, which seven-part broadcast in 1996 drew one of the largest ever radio audiences in the UK for a book dramatisation? Oh, I don't know, but I bet it was adapted by the gentleman at <laughs> the other end of the microphone. How did you get there? One point for Dave. How did you know that? But what's the answer? Well, I, well, I was stabbed in the dark, you know. One point to I, Dave. I, I'd be interested to know the answer because I don't know. Seven parts. Seven part broadcast, 1996. Oh, boy. Um, you did, you it, did I, do it, Bert. You did do it. I did? Are yes. we talking Barbara Taylor Bradford? Correct. It's The Woman in His Life by Barbara yes. Taylor Bradford. Well done. And I thought that was eight parts. Oh, well. <laughs> you must have written. Yes, exactly. You. They didn't tell no, you no, about no, that. No, 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 I'll believe you. You tell me it was seven, I'll believe you. Uh, so question number four. Which book has often been challenged for removal from libraries in the US and Canada and served as the inspiration for the song by the band Screech Owls? Good grief. Mm. I don't know the band bit, but... Um, Marked for exclusion from American libraries, would we? Are we talking Doyle? No. We're not talking Doyle? No. Um, in that case, I, don't I know a little bit about those. I don't know the answer. <laughs> Something by Mark Twain. 
No. Or Catcher in the Rye or uh, something the like song, that. The song, I'll give you I'll give you a clue. The song was called Guinea Pig. Guinea Pig? Uh, my, yes. Uh, Richard Gere's well, autobiography. <laughs> Daniel, Daniel Keyes? Surely not. It could be. Flowers for Algernon? Correct. Well done. Who adapted it for radio starring Tom Courtney? I can't I think it was imagine. this man there. <laughs> I think, I'm afraid I guilty, yes. Joint equal points there. Dave was just as fast as you, but yes, he was Burt Cools. And finally, question five, which 1957 novel is based on the Battle of Leros and Leros Island's naval artillery? I didn't realise it was as early as that, but are we talking about the guns of Navarone? Correct, yes, absolutely we are, of course we are. The Alistair McLean classic, made into a critically acclaimed film in 1961. Who adapted it for radio? I'm afraid that would be me. You're done, Dave, yes! <laughs> nearly in the lead there, nearly got you there, Bruce. <laughs> Congratulations, I haven't added it up, but I think, um, I think you've just about won it. got to say, the past hour, actually... Gosh, don't usually go on that long. It just shows what a popular guy you are. But it's gone really quickly. Thank you so much for being our special guest on La Tapia After Dark tonight. That's Bert Cools. Bert, if people want to know more about you and all the myriad works that you've done, where do they go? They can go to my website, which is www.bertcools, or one word, .co. UK. Or you can chuck me into Google and it comes up with my Wikipedia page, I think, and my yeah, website. It comes up with all kinds of stuff, some of which I've planned tonight for very unfair questions about you. Um, <laughs> we are um, taking a week off next week, everyone. I haven't told Ali or <laughs> Dave. This is kind of news to them, folks. Um, Thank you, Def. Yeah, uh, Open House and Latopia After Dark, week off next week. Two weeks' time, we'll be back. Open House will be back at a different time, 7 o'clock, slightly later. Remember... March the 18th is our, is our big one with Jeffrey Archer live on Latopia After Dark. Um, look forward to that. Make sure you get in the chat room early. There'll be lots of people wanting to talk to Jeffrey. We've had such a good time. Why don't we do it all again this time in two weeks' time? Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. If you've enjoyed the show you've just listened to, then please do us a favour. Pop over to iTunes, search for Litopia, and give us a good review. See you soon. Litopia needs your help. For the cost of a cappuccino a week, you can help us stay on the air. Click on the Support Us link now. 